You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, it can't have escaped your attention that it has been a couple of months since I've had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Harry Hagopian for Middle East Analysis. Now, it'd be fair to say we're both sitting down, but not in the same place, because in these COVID-19 times, we're um, in our abodes, aren't we, Harry? So I can't see you, I'm afraid. This isn't Zoom or or Skype or something where I'd see your face, Um, but I can hear you. So how are you? Uh, it's it's a pleasure, uh, James, to hear your voice. That's pretty much what I can do at my end. And for a technophobe like me to sit behind one of those fancy uh, things that you're using for this recording of MEA, a part of me is concerned that I won't mess it up, and the other part of me is excited to learn a new trick. Well... And we're both learning, Harry, for sure. Um, your big brain won't let us down. Let's, <laughs> let's put all the pressure on you, shall we? Listen, after so many weeks of lockdown, I don't know if the brain is uh, still functional, but I'm sure you'll test me on it in our uh, interview. Looking forward to it. And I should apologise, listeners, in advance, preempting if my irritating dogs decide to burst in the room and, and try and add their voices or barks or whatever you want to call it to Middle East analysis. I don't know what their views are on the Middle East. I, I hope they're well informed, Harry, but I can't guarantee it. Well, the that is not what I would say. My comment on that, James, would be that in the Middle East, North Africa, uh, stray dogs and stray cats, which is not the case with your dogs, but stray dogs and stray cats are quite a usual phenomenon. Any road you go down in the Middle East, North Africa, you're bound to come across a dog or a cat or two. So in a sense, that is part of life in that part of the world. And it always uh, shocks some very prudish uh, Westerners who come and see those stray dogs and they're outraged that they're not taken care of much more. To which I answer... Let's start with the human beings first. Well, you know what? That is a, probably a fairly good mantra for our Middle East uh, North Africa podcast, isn't it? Really? <laughs> let, let, let's, let's stick to humans for the time being. Let's now, Harry, stick to humans and let's stick to the subject at hand today. Let's do it. Now, look, I know you've got a couple of channels yourself that you've been um, entertaining us with, I would say, with some very serious subject matter on top of that. Arm wrestling with COVID-19, which I think probably most of the country in the world is doing right now, and also intuitive reactions, which is, is kind of your opportunity just to sort of reflect on the matters of the day, obviously Middle East, North Africa predominantly, via YouTube. So this shouldn't really be anything particularly new to you because we today are going to talk about the potential annexation of Palestinian land in the West Bank uh, by Israel because from the 1st of July it could well go before Parliament and become a reality. So where to start? I mean, you talked about humans and humanity. I, I suppose the place to start is what this really means for the for the Palestinians, because obviously they're not taking part in any negotiations on this because they've, they've flatly rejected it. What does this mean for Palestine, first of all? And then, of course, what does it mean for Israel? Wow, that's a huge uh, question, uh, uh, James. First of all, uh, thank you for mentioning my YouTube adventures. I call them adventures, I call them episodes. And you're absolutely right. Everybody's arm wrestling with the new coronavirus, which is why at the end of the title or label for my uh, coronavirus YouTube episodes, I put in London. The idea being that I'm sat in London, I'm uh, locked in London, and I'm trying to look at how the world is dealing with it. And in terms of intuitive reactions, you and I have had a couple of bashes at that in written script. And now I thought, you know what, let me try and do the video as well and share it with some of my constituencies or colleagues. You went straight to the heart of the matter, which is the uh, possible annexation uh, as early as uh, July in a month's time of a large chunk of uh, Palestinian-occupied land by Israel. Now, 
a couple of things. Uh, let me first of all start by saying that in order to understand this annexation, we have to go back a little bit. Not that far, because I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I'm not going to go and riffle through the pages of history again. You and I have done this over many years when we've spoken about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But what I would like to do is my point of departure would be the deal of the century and that famous scene that I still have in front of me of President uh, Donald Trump and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the White House uh, trying to market, to sell the deal of the century to a world that wasn't necessarily happy to cooperate with this deal of the century. In fact, uh, Uh, the fact that there were only Netanyahu and uh, Trump there and nobody else meant that they were the only two agents of this deal of the century. But that's the starting point I'd like to use very briefly to say that, okay, we had that deal of the century and finally the the choreography was put in place. Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of President Donald Trump, did his bit and he prepared, he set the scene for it. His father-in-law came all glowing with satisfaction. And of course, even more satisfied was Netanyahu because he thought that he was probably getting what he never dreamt he would get in any other circumstance and with any other U.S. uh, president. And of course, the deal of the century was something that the Palestinians refused categorically. They decided that it is inimical with their interests because they've already given up a large chunk of historical Palestine during the Oslo process, something they're being blamed for until today. So there was no way that they were going to say, oh, okay, we'll accept the deal of the century. Israel can come and take this, that, and the other. And whatever little crumbs are left on the table, we'll we'll take them. And this created quite a bit of a standoff between the U.S. administration and the Palestinian Authority in terms of how do we move uh, forward. Well, the rest to a certain extent for those people who have some understanding or some interest in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, they know what has happened. Relations between Palestinians and Americans were frozen uh, for a number of long weeks and months. And in the meantime, Israel was involved in successive elections in order to make sure that Netanyahu stays prime minister and therefore manages to have support and immunity from any uh, judicial processes uh, in Israel itself. And finally, as part of this deal of the century a la Netanyahu, what he did, he sort of said that come July of this year, if and when he becomes prime minister, he's going to annex large swathes of land, which are basically Palestinian-occupied lands. Now, why did he say that? He said that because, first of all, he wanted to keep the right-wing Uh, of the Israeli public, starting with his own Likud colleagues all the way to the settlers and others to keep them on board with him so they would support him in government. He also wanted to do that because he knows that uh, he's 70, he's coming to the end of his political life no matter what happens. I mean, he can't go on and on and on. And I think he's thinking of... uh, writing his legacy, and what he wants to be remembered with is that he was the Prime Minister of Israel, not Ben-Gurion, the founder of the state, but him, Benjamin Netanyahu, who actually ensured that the Zionist legacy of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, was something he made real and gave it back uh, to the Israelis. So these are the things that he's working at. And of course, there is the, no matter how much noise he makes that he wants a solution with the Palestinians, Netanyahu, in my opinion, does not want a solution. He all, all he wants to do is keep the whole land, get rid of the Palestinians on the land. In other words, as one famous Palestinian Christian diplomat, Afif Safieh, 
often used to say, Netanyahu wants to keep the geography and get rid of the demography. And in a sense, what he wants to do is get rid of the Palestinians, those uh, pesky human beings who are interfering with his plans for greater Israel, and in so doing, keep the land and put them in little pockets without any real sovereignty, without any real contiguity. And therefore, what he wants to do, sorry to keep repeating myself, James, is to manage the occupation, not end it. And in a sense, that is one definition But that's basically what annexation means for me. This is a bit of a nightmare for the Palestinians, isn't it? Because I remember saying to a friend, a colleague, actually, the other day, that organisations and institutions are are really slow in responding to this one, actually. And actually, they'll probably end up pinning their statements to bulldozers if they take any longer about this whole thing. (laughs) Um, If you think about the EU, it's, it's a number of countries, isn't it? So it's always, you know, consensus isn't easy at the best of times. The UK is is quite slow on this one, um, although, you know, you do get the, the usual things you'd expect, like this is contrary to international law and there will be consequences. It cannot go unchallenged. We hear that from everyone, don't we? But I think in one of your intuitive reactions, you were sort of lamenting that Israel-Palestine, where, where once it would have been at the forefront of foreign policy and, and certainly a key concern for many countries, you know, and, and if you add on top of that COVID-19, it's fallen into the background, hasn't it? Isn't this why we're not seeing too many strong responses to, to what would appear to be a breach in international law? That's absolutely true, uh, James. It's spot on what you've just said. And yes, I did mention at some length in three successive intuitive reactions on YouTube about my views on annexation, which made me very popular with a large constituency and very unpopular with a slightly smaller constituency. But let us take all the actors. Okay, the deal of the century is basically Jared Kushner plus a couple of other people with him uh, who put this together and endorsed by U.S. President Donald Trump. So you can't really anymore sell the idea that the Americans are honest brokers when it comes to Israel-Palestine. It's quite clear that Americans are basically partial to the Israeli viewpoint and not even the Israeli viewpoint, because I still maintain, despite the fact that over the years I've seen Israeli public opinion slide more and more toward the right, I still think that many, many people in Israel, even today in uh, Tel Aviv, there there are some Israeli Jews who are uh, demonstrating against the annexation, but uh, there is a slide uh, to the right, that's for sure, but there are many, many Israelis who would still wish to see a solution to this uh, conflict. However, the Americans aren't going to necessarily be the main players. Then, of course, there are the Europeans. Now, the Europeans are themselves. There's so so much that we can talk about the EU and Europeans. And when I say the EU, I'm very conscious that we're in, but we're out as far as the UK is concerned. So, in a sense, Europe of the 27, or if we want to be very academic, the 28 still until the end of the year, at least. What we, what I would say is Europe is very confused. It's confused on a whole host of levels. It's confused because uh, all the member states, where some of them at least are facing the COVID-19 pandemic. But in terms of Israel-Palestine, like other Uh, conflicts in the region, whether it is Syria, whether it is Libya, whether it is Yemen, whether it is the violation of human rights in places like Egypt, for the EU to have a foreign policy, the biggest problem is that there has to be unanimity of all 27 member states. And that is almost impossible, virtually impossible. And when you try to apply that to the Israel-Palestine context and to the annexation issues, it's very, very difficult for uh, the EU to be able to come up with a uh, united, concerted foreign policy about annexation. You're absolutely right. The 27 plus the UK also will make all the right noises about against international law. We shouldn't want this. We are still for a two-state solution, no matter how impractical that is becoming uh, week in, week out, month in, month out. And in a sense, 
now that the EU has new faces, I mean, it's now uh, Joseph Borrell, who's the high representative, he's the one who is now trying to lead the EU towards some sort of coherent foreign policy. He is trying to revive the two-state solution by going back to the idea of the Venice Declaration of 1980, which basically started this whole process of two states, and then trying to suggest that it would be possible to have a Madrid quartet or a quartet plus, if you want to add China and some of the Gulf countries into it, in order to sit together and find a solution. And the EU, therefore, is not really dealing with the issues, but is trying to go back in history and say, look, let's not lose the idea of a two-state solution. Let's stick to it and let's bring the actors together in order to make it happen. There are two main problems to this, James. The one problem is I've just touched upon it very, very briefly, and that is the state of uh, confusion, the lack of consensus, the lack of unanimity within the EU. And I can actually understand that because 27, 28 countries is like mixing oil and water. No matter how much you shake the bottle, you're not going to get a homogenous mixture. But the other thing also is it actually goes against the grain as far as I'm concerned because it assumes that Netanyahu and the Israeli right even parties like uh, Yemina and others, actually want a solution. You know what? Uh, uh, Netanyahu went to meet the settlers' leaders a couple of days ago, and they actually didn't like the idea of the annexation because they thought that post-annexation, when Israel is supposed to annex the Jordan Valley, is supposed to annex the settlements, is supposed to annex chunks of the historical Palestine, they were unhappy because it still might keep some sort of an autonomous Palestinian political reality on the ground, and they didn't even want that. So when the EU says, we want two-state solution, we want a Madrid Quartet plus, we we don't want to give up on the idea of this two-state solution, it presumes that the Israelis will be willing to negotiate. And in my opinion, they do not want to negotiate. I'm sorry to say that, but that's my conclusion. And therefore, how can you start a process when you know that one of the key actors, supported by the greatest superpower in the world, will not play ball with you? No, absolutely. And and you'd have to say, wouldn't you, that geography, and obviously you alluded to it there, geography could well be something that, that scuppers this, I guess. Because if you're, you know, you mentioned the, the prominent settler leaders, but if, if you're close to Jerusalem, maybe it's not so bad. If you're further away, you might feel more isolated. You might feel that your settlement won't expand anymore. You might feel it will take you two hours to get to Jerusalem, whereas previously it might have taken you 30 minutes or something. There is a matter of geography here, isn't there? I mean, not only to sort of scupper the Palestinians' hopes of, of having their own state because they wouldn't have a contiguous one. It worries me, actually, Harry, because it makes me think you know, we often describe Gaza, don't we, as a, as a huge open air prison. But if annexation goes ahead, we, we could easily be saying the same for various areas in the West Bank. And it, it worries me that we'd have several disconnected mini Gazas with even potentially different authorities in charge. Is that a danger? Uh, that is a very big danger because, in fact, if uh, Israel were to annex the Jordan Valley, and a lot of that would depend on how the Arabs react to it. Not only Jordan, because Jordan borders Israel at the Jordan Valley, but other countries as well. If this annexation were to go ahead and if Israel were to say this is Israel proper and in fact uh, try to combine de jure and de facto annexation together and say all this is mine. If you look at the map, and it's a small map because it's a small parcel of land. If you look at it, then you are actually doing exactly that. You are enclosing Palestinians in a cage that is separated by lands belonging to Israel, and therefore those are those become cages which in some uh, quarters I've read, people are freely comparing them to Bantustans according to the South African reality of past years. And if you go as far as that, then it doesn't take much 
to use the A word and say we are living apartheid times. And in a sense, that is what would happen. And this is part of the reason why the Palestinians are so dead set against it and why they are so angry with the Americans for having facilitated or midwifed this this, uh, deal of the century, which led to a newborn, a stillborn, we'll see what the next few weeks prove, but uh, they've midwifed a process, a birth that actually might destroy a dream. And if it destroys that dream, you might say, well, fine, it destroys that dream, we'll have peace and quiet. The problem is we will not have peace and quiet. We will have more violence. We will have more uncertainty. And this is where I have often said in those intuitive reactions and elsewhere, I've said it a zillion times to you in our conversations as well, that if the Americans are not the honest, fair brokers, Europeans uh, are unable uh, to provide a consensual deal. I mean, you don't really believe that uh, countries like Hungary and the Czech Republic and others are going to say yes to the Palestinians and no to Israel because of their uh, various multilateral interests. Then the Arabs, what are the Arabs going to do? Uh, Are they going to be uh, clear about it or not. They've made noises, but they don't want to upset Trump, who's a very phlegmatic person and who sort of suddenly flares up. And that brings us back to the two key players, Israel and the Palestinians. And what will the Palestinians do? So it's really a very difficult situation in which the Palestinians find themselves these days. And this is why I I worry about this annexation. And this is why I think, other than the fact that it goes against all my instincts as an international lawyer, it goes against all my instincts as uh, somebody who's been involved with the region politically for well over two decades, three decades almost, it goes against my instincts because I know the region quite well. So all this put together, and I sort of say, come on, okay, we're, we're living an age of populism, but there is a limit. There's a very nice movement in Israel that came some while ago, which was called in Hebrew, Yesh Gvul, which means there is a limit. This much and no more. And yet at the moment, it seems to me that uh, things are uh, really, really very hairy. And it's going to be interesting to see You said something in your intro that when Netanyahu annexes in July, I am not yet 100% sure, maybe I'm clinging to straws, but I'm not 100% sure that he will do the annexation or even if he does it to save face with the right-wing ideologues and the settlers and all the people who hate anything called Palestine, he might do it in piecemeal annexation, starting with areas that would have less Uh, responsive uh, recriminations and then deal with the Jordan Valley because Jordan's role in this is quite important as well. All this put together mixes it and makes it quite an uncertain uh, situation. We've had quite a rough ride from the deal of the century so-called to an illegal annexation if it were to happen and that is not good news for uh, decent and uh, clear-minded people. Well, I might actually steal one of your phrases from one one of your intuitive reactions because it made me laugh and because you didn't say it on purpose. It was great, actually. You just sort of picked up on me presuming this would happen in July. I suppose your phrase of certainly perhaps is quite, (laughs) quite, quite a good one for that, actually. But on a more serious note, I just want to pick up one final thing about, you know, why it may not happen or in fact what what the role of of some prominent settlers may be and whether, whether that may sway Netanyahu, at least perhaps, as you've mentioned, in in the speed at which he looks at it and the tactical fashion he may look at this. I did read, actually, that one of those uh, settler leaders, the uh, Yesha Council chairman, and forgive me if I pronounce the name wrong, David El Hayani, um, had said that US President Trump and and advisor Jared Kushner are not friends of Israel. And actually, he, he was a bit more cynical, made the point that they're primarily interested in winning the 2020 presidential election. And this is a, is a piece of that. Is that cynical or true? Well, there is some truth in that. I mean, Donald Trump 
constituency. Everybody talks about his constituency and this chunk of roughly 40% who support him no matter what. He's the one who said, I think, and I'm paraphrasing, no matter what I do, they will vote for me and they will support me. Now, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, the the conclusion in some people's minds is that uh, he is courting or wooing or after the American Jewish votes. Well, I have news for these people by saying I disagree with that uh, conclusion. The American-Israeli constituency, sorry, the American-Jewish constituency is not necessarily supportive of annexation, and they are not necessarily going to vote for Donald Trump either. What he is doing is he is wooing or he is trying to be nice with the evangelical Christian constituency in uh, America and the United States, because not all of them, a large chunk of them, are in this biblical frame of mind where this is the land of Israel, this belongs to Israel, and therefore it should all go back to Israel. And every time Trump says something like this, it's nirvana for them. And this is the constituency that is most committed to the issue of annexation. So is there a little bit of electioneering for Donald Trump? Definitely, because don't forget, with coronavirus, he messed it up with the uh, riots and the protests that are happening now. Some people call it protests, others call it riots. There is also a total messing up by the administration as to how they deal with it. So his popularity, the first time ever I've seen a poll conducted in the States, which brings his popularity and support down from that mythic 40% to 33%. Now that's going to sound alarm bells in US administration because they're going to start thinking of what happens in November when he faces Joe Biden uh, for presidency. So yes, Yes, there is that, but there is also ideology, and the ideology is in different degrees. Netanyahu is not an ideologue, and Netanyahu by nature, I think, is a person who is averse to taking huge risks. Now, why is he taking risks like the deal of the century and the annexation? For different reasons. One is because he's never had this kind of unqualified open and explicit support from a U.S. president before. So he wants to make hay while the sun shines because it might well be that in November uh, Trump is no more. Then he looks at the Arab world and the Arab world is totally or almost totally mute when it comes to uh, Palestine-Israel. And I'm not talking about the Arab world in the sense of the men and women in the street. I'm talking about the leaders of the Arab world, the famous 22 Arab leaders who constitute the Arab League organization. They are not saying much. Why are not they saying much? Because they're partly busy with their own affairs, the uprisings and revolts and across the Arab world, which haven't stopped, by the way. Look at the Arab world today. It's as messy as it was in 2010, 2011. But also because some of the Arab Gulf countries, not least Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, are meant to be Uh, constructing new relations with Israel and therefore all this makes the Arab world qualify their support for Palestine and the Palestinians in a way that's never been in the past. So what that means for Netanyahu is the Arab world will not say anything. Remember James, we had the move of the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Did the Arabs do anything? No, thank you. We had the, uh, what What could they have done? You can ask me this question. When you say, Harry, they didn't do anything, what could they have done? I'll tell you what they could have done. They didn't need to sever diplomatic relations with America, perish the thought, but they could have sort of used their financial clout to make it painful for America politically to be so one-sided in its support of Israel. And this man, the President Trump, is a businessman before he even becomes a politician. Therefore, money is what matters for him. Did they do any of that? No, they didn't. 
when the deal of the century happened, one of the things that Trump and Netanyahu wanted is to have a parade of many Arab leaders standing there next to Trump and Netanyahu to show support for the deal of the century. None of them showed. There were a few diplomats, a few shills from some of the Arab countries who came and sat there, didn't say much, but they had to do it because uh, Trump wanted somebody there. But most of the Arab world didn't uh, didn't uh, show up. So in a sense, the Arabs are also mute. So Netanyahu says the Palestinians are as divided as ever. Gaza is as far from Ramallah as London is from Sydney. So in a sense, Netanyahu is saying, why do I have to be risk averse? Palestinians can't do anything. The Arabs won't do anything. The EU can't, won't, shouldn't. America is with us. If I don't do it now, I'll never be able to do it. Let me do it now and let me get into history, into the pages of history by being the best Zionist who promoted the best legacy and the best uh, situation for Israel. And in relation to that, I only have one sentence, and I'll take this sentence from what the black man who was killed, who was murdered in uh, the States recently said, when that policeman was pressing on his neck, he said, I can't breathe. And that created all those riots and protests. In reaction to that, the Palestinians now have their own motto. They say collectively, we can't breathe until we are free. That is not a fatalistic, plaintive cry or sob. This means that when you are pressing on somebody's neck that he or she can't breathe, that person will fight until such time that they can breathe and that they are free. That, to me, is where we are today with Palestine. I take the the point about apathy from from the Arab League and, and some of those nations, but you know we're talking about the Jordan Valley as well, and Jordan, as far as I could tell, has said that it will consider all options. But is that just a hollow threat? They must they must feel that this is going to fundamentally, literally change the landscape for them. Uh, this is not a hollow threat. Um, again, in one of my uh, uh, intuitive reactions, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I spoke quite a bit about Jordan. Um, This is not a hollow threat. Why? Because Jordan and the Hashemite dynasty are very careful. They're real politicians. They're diplomats. They know when to speak and when not to speak. And they're not given to ranting and raving. They're given to measured steps and measured statements. When the king of Jordan, King Abdullah II, says that this is serious... I would take him seriously. And in fact, I know that the military establishment in Israel, which does not necessarily subscribe with the political establishment in Israel in all things, is also very wary about the annexation. I know that uh, Benny Gantz, Prime Minister number two of Israel these days, is also wary about this annexation. But on this matter, he yields, he cedes to Netanyahu. That's part of their coalition agreement. So Jordan is serious. However, I people who said, oh, if this happens tomorrow, the Jordanian-Israeli treaty will be abrogated, diplomatic relations will be severed, and that'll be the end of it. I don't think Jordan will do that. I don't think it needs to do that either, because it could be more incremental. Jordan can still take uh, measures. It can stop cooperation on uh, IT issues, on agricultural issues, on people-to-people issues. There are many, many things that Jordan can do to show its displeasure without necessarily abrogating its treaty. Because at the end of the day, what matters is that for Jordan, the Jordan Valley, that chunk of land is part of its national security. And you are basically through annexation treading on that national security. And this is why I think that Jordan will act in its own diplomatic measured way. Now, Jordan alone cannot match Israel's rhetorics or Israel's power or Israel's decisions. But that is where other countries 
I hope, I suspect, will come to uh, support Jordan. And if Netanyahu really, it's the irony of it is really quite uh, laughable. If Netanyahu wants to manage an occupation rather than resolve it, And if Netanyahu wants to go in the pages of history as the first prime minister to to, uh, create, to uh, establish relations with some of the Gulf countries and some of the North African Arab countries, the last thing he should do is throw the cat amongst the pigeons and say, I want to do annexation, because that will make the Gulf country leaders more risk-averse and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't wish to be seen being so complacent and such quizzlings that they would actually say, oh, well, never mind, we want relations with Israel. And at the same time, a Palestinian issue that to a large extent was being ignored by much of the world will come to the fore. It has come to the fore with this issue of the deal of the century and the annexation. And therefore, the Palestinians now have another, a second breath, a third breath, a fourth breath in order to push their agenda and make sure uh, that their case is not forgotten. So this whole ideology of I want this to be our land and ours alone doesn't make sense to me. But then in politics, it doesn't necessarily need to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it, it's strange, isn't it, that we can talk for half an hour and and not give more attention, I suppose, to the, to the Palestinian response and what they could do in terms of, you know, is there a potential for a peace-based response? And I'm actually going going to not really draw on that just yet because my one of, one of the questions I do want you to answer as an international lawyer, I mean, it's impossible not to make parallels with, with the Russians' annexation of Crimea in, in 2014. And, you know, you talk about treaties being abrogated, you talk about relationships potentially being severed, all these things are true. But then what is international law actually worth these days with with that and Crimea in mind? You know, a couple of quick answers to that, uh, James. The first answer is it's very interesting that you raise the issue of uh, Crimea. Because if you remember when uh, Russia occupied Crimea, took Crimea over, and it also took some parts of the Ukraine, What did the European Union do? The EU, and then it was solidly 28, not like uh, today, they basically took very, very strong economic sanctions, financial and economic sanctions against Russia, which are still in place today and which are hurting Russia a lot. Now, somebody might go and say, okay, if you did it with the annexation of the Crimea, why don't you do it with the annexation of Palestinian land? The difference is that there was consensus versus Russia, but there is no consensus within the EU uh, versus Israel. And that provides me with the second part of my answer to you about international law. What is international law? International law, to a large extent, is the practice of nations that becomes precedent or that is codified. And therefore, if you practice something in one way, that is what international law uh, becomes. If you do it in another way, then that is what international law is. So in a sense, it depends on the practice. So when we say it breaks international law, yes, but international law needs political uh, accompanying, needs politicians to subscribe to it because in itself it's a little bit like you would know this better than I. What was it that was it Stalin who said how many battalions does the Pope have when they were talking about uh, what can Rome and the Vatican do? Uh, The same applies to international law. How many battalions does international law have to enforce uh, something? The way it happens is when law-abiding countries subscribe to the norms of international law and apply it to themselves as much to other, as to others. But when you have renegades who do not want to apply international law, international lawyers cannot send brigades of uh, or battalions to enforce 
that law. It's happening so clearly nowadays with the International Criminal Court, where the Palestinians are involved in a huge soap opera, a drama with the special prosecutor at the ICC to see whether the ICC can hear the complaints uh, being lodged by the Palestinians about settlements, about annexation, about uh, human rights violations, about all sorts of things that very capable Palestinian lawyers living in the diaspora as well as in Palestine have put together in their briefings. So in a sense, it depends on that. But what did the, uh, the American administration say? It said that if the ICC uh, does... Uh, listen to the complaints by lodged by the Palestinians, then we're going to uh, work against the ICC. This is where it gets complicated when politics and the law become enmeshed. And it's almost like putting a wolf and a lamb in front of each other and saying, you're equals, fight it out. You're not equals. Yeah. Let's turn to the Palestinian response. And I think we have certainly covered why that is difficult, especially when you... you reject what's being put on the table in front of you. Um, I was obviously going to ask you if there is a peace-based response. How many times have I asked you whether there could potentially be a third intifada? At least I've asked you that two or three times in you know recent months and years. But if we, and we shouldn't, but if we were to say that in July or, or sometime soon after that this annexation does go ahead, you know, what are the so-called land swaps or, or how exactly, you know, what self-rule will be granted to Palestinians? I mean, what do they get out of this? Is there, is there anything that we can look at that, from that side of things? That is a very good question. And yes, you've asked me this question so many times before, and I've always hedged my answers when I've uh, sort of considered what you're asking me. Listen, nobody still knows first of all whether the annexation will no will happen in July or uh, not. I am still holding on to a ray of hope that it mightn't or it might be postponed or it wouldn't be the way that I think it could well be if there is a real annexation happening. But assuming there is annexation, then it is going to completely change the map of the West Bank. Because when you suddenly have lands that are sovereign to Israel, at least according to the Israeli uh, uh, viewpoint, not the viewpoint of the pages of international law, public international law, what would happen then is you exactly have that. You have a plate or forget the plate, the, the story, that's the, the image that's been used millions of times for 20, 30 years, it's like a Swiss cheese. You have a blob of Swiss cheese with holes in it. Those holes will be the Palestinian pockets, but one hole is not connected to the other, and that is going to make life even more difficult, let alone illegal and all those things that we can talk about as academics. But then... The question is, what will the Palestinians be given in return to make them accept this situation? I don't think they will accept it. Now, what could be the answer? The answer would be to wait it out until uh, a new president arrives in the States, if there is a change of president, and maybe somebody like Joe Biden would have a different approach to this. He might row back a bit uh, on this. That's one possibility. The other possibility, yes, there might be more violence and that violence would unsettle not only the Palestinian lands and some of Israel, although there is an ugly wall now separating Israelis from Palestinians, but it could also involve Jordan in it. The third option is, and this is important to me, and I've said this many a time in the past, is that what distinguishes Democrats from demagogues or demagoguery from democracy is not necessarily just a lofty idea. No, it is the presence of institutions which make democracy viable versus the lack of institutions or disrespect for institutions which turn Democrats into demagogues. Why am I bringing this into the conversation here? I'm bringing it into the conversation because I think that America as a democracy has very well-rooted 
uh, institutions. And it would might well be that the Palestinians could address, could dialogue with those institutions who, unlike the president and his son-in-law, particularly his son-in-law, are more aware of real politics and the realities on the ground, and therefore they might actually have something to say about what happens next, post a possible annexation, whether that annexation is in July or whether that annexation is at some other stage. So, in a sense, I'm hoping that it will it will not be as bad as a lot of people and even I in my worst nightmares consider because as I've said to you, James, in the past and I repeat it today, the Palestinians are in no state to fight back against the behemoth of an Israeli-American political and military force. So in a sense, what can they do? First, they have to think, can they work together? Can they unite? I'm not too sure that Gaza necessarily wants to work with Ramallah, and I'm not sure that Ramallah can work with Gaza at this stage, given the personalities and given the structures and the people allied to both those entities today. So if that that coming together with the of Palestinians doesn't happen, then I'm really worried about what could happen next. But I could go so far as to say that the worst case scenario is that there'll be some hubbub, there'll be some chaos, there'll be a storm in a teacup, and then it will all subside like it's happened time and again in the history of the Arab world and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and then life will continue. Unfortunately, that is always a possibility that is there, just as the possibility of further unbridled violence is there, just as the possibility that somehow the Arab countries and the EU might wake up and do something, just like the possibility that the American administration might have a different uh, perspective to it. But one th- of one thing I'm sure, after 20, 25 years of being involved with the politics of the MENA region and of Israel-Palestine, one thing I'm sure, Palestine and the Palestinian issue is not just a material issue. It's an idea for the Arab world, for the Arab and to large extent the Muslim worlds. And an idea is something you cannot vanquish, you cannot obliterate. If it's a building, you blow it up, the building disappears. You've seen it when you went to Gaza yourself with your own eyes a few years ago. Whereas an idea is something more seminal, something more metaphysical, something more transcendental, and you cannot destroy an idea. And Palestine is an idea. So I've told you this before, and I'll say it again, and you'll tell me, oh, you're being an, a, a pessimist, and I'll tell you, no, I'm being a pessoptimist, and then you'll laugh because we've done this uh, this joke ad nauseum. But what I would say is that that idea will probably outlast me. And unfortunately, and you're younger than I, unfortunately, it might outlast you as well at the rate we're going. But one day, one day, <laughs> one day there will be a Palestine. When, how, at what expense, That is the question today, and it's a sad question because when I was working with Oslo, the much maligned Oslo these days, when I was trying to help create this vision of two states next to each other in security, because at the end of the day, believe you me, if you take politics out of it, Israelis and Palestinians can work very well together. They do in business. They can do it in other aspects of life as well. I hoped that there will be this vision. And I was really hoping, I told this to mom, my mom, uh, when she was alive. I used to go to our house and sit with her and talk and we would have a meal together. And she would tell me, Harry, why are you wasting your time with all of this? You've got the skills of a lawyer. You can do this, you can do that. And yet you're going around uh, uh, hitting your head at a concrete wall, trying to make a change which will not come. And I used to tell her, mom, would it not be brilliant? Don't you think that it would be brilliant if we have two states 
next to each other, the state of Israel and the state of Palestine, and in this whole uh, ruckus about the politics of the region. And would it not be even better, um, I used to tell her, if I were to have a tiny, tiny infinitesimal contribution to this and live long enough to witness it? Now, I don't think I will live long enough to see a state of Palestine. It will probably happen, but after I'm way gone from earthly uh, Jerusalem to heavenly Jerusalem. But my mom's uh, answer was different. She used to tell me, why are you so worried about that? You're not even married. You don't even have kids and grandchildren. So what's, what's bothering you? And we used to laugh about that and then keep eating our falafels. <laughs> might be the way for all of us, mightn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I very much take that point. There is, I, I think, we, you know, we're closing on the end here, Harry, and it's been fascinating as normal. But I do think there's one actually pretty important point to make, and you certainly touched upon it there um, in terms of the, the people themselves. The people aren't political parties. You know, Hamas, not all Gazans are, are, are represented by Hamas in the literal sense, I don't suppose, and, and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Likewise, Likud, likewise, the Israel Resilience Party. You know, I've seen plenty of Israelis and Palestinians embracing and smiling and, and, and enjoying one another's company. And I, I guess that's the dream with, with, with two states. But also, you know, there was that understandable outrage about anti-Semitism in political parties and, you know, everything that came to light in recent times. But it is very important to make clear that, that this podcast and, in fact, these conversations on, uh, and criticisms of annexation are not criticisms of the people of Israel or, or Jewish people the world over. This is, this is more a policy, isn't it? You know what? I'll tell you what. This is something that is so standard, so cliched, so so repetitive. It's almost tautological, but I'll say it nonetheless. I have great respect for the Jewish people. I love their jokes. I love their company. I have many, many... When I was doing the Oslo process, I used to spend a lot of my time with Palestinians and also a lot of my time with uh, Israeli Jews because it is fun to be with them. And when we were at the heyday, at the height of the Oslo process, when whether rightly or wrongly, we won't go into that at this stage because people like many people like the late Edward Said to Dr. Khalidi to others have basically poo-pooed the uh, Oslo process. And I respect that viewpoint because in hindsight, uh, it was a failure. Uh, What I would say that when we were still in the heart of the Oslo process, I used to see how Palestinians and uh, Arabs and Israeli Jews used to work together, used to joke together, used to laugh together. Uh, I even spoke to some somebody uh, in the UK. We were doing a, a program uh, on uh, Israel-Palestine, and I used to tell him that one of my uh, most interesting uh, points in this in the negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians was not when they were all taking themselves seriously, but when we would all sit around a table, have mezes, and talk while we were having a drink and a bite. And then people would let their guards down a bit, and then they rediscovered their humanity and forgot the fact that they are actually representatives of labels, but rather representatives of human beings. And that as human beings, they're not so different from each other. It's only when we attribute labels to people, whether it's confessional, identity, uh, political, whatever, that is when people's guard goes up. And when that's not happening, when you're having a glass of Arak or Ouzo or Pernod or whatever, when you're eating your mutabbal, your baba ghanouj, your hummus, your falafel, your uh, fatayer, life is different. And then you don't even fight over whether the identity of falafel is Palestinian or Israeli. You just have a laugh, you talk, and you rediscover the humanity of the other. You realize that there is something that binds us together. And then you suddenly are put in front of the political drama, the political identity, and then you suddenly forget the humanity side of it and go into the politics side of it. So 
this is what really worries me. And this happens by everybody. When I get criticized right, left and center for having said this and not having said that, people say, oh, well, why are you not being fair? I am being fair when it comes to my interpretation of the politics of it. But I'm also being fair when it comes uh, to the people's Involved, And my hope always was, when I was talking to you earlier in this conversation, and it's almost an hour-long conversation, when I was talking to you about the fact that the Israeli uh, public is sliding to the right, the Palestinian public is also sliding into a more fundamentalist frame of mind. Why? Because both sides, the victim and the victimizer, the occupied and the occupier, are both being traumatized by a a history, a conflict, a reality that at the very least, if we don't want to delve back into the pages of history, starts in 67. And this has traumatized them so much that when they think of the other, they don't think of the other man or woman, they think of the other political label, and that makes the situation even more electric and electrifying. This is where I have a problem and this is why I try my best to look beyond that. And this is why when I do a conversation with you, one of the reasons why I so much enjoy our conversations and why, to be honest with you, without really inflating your ego uh, too much, James, because we know each other quite well, um, the people like our interaction, our chemistry, the way we talk, because we go above labels and we start looking at things as two human beings with some modicum of common sense would look at a reality, at a political reality. I have absolutely no problem telling you what I think of this person or that person. And I think to a large extent that that's you as well, because maybe it's faith-based, maybe it's culture-based, maybe it's whatever it is. This is where we need to go back to. We need to rediscover the other. And if we rediscover the other, then maybe we have some hope. But when we have people like Trump in the States, whose whole ethos, his whole political platform is in sowing dissension rather than bringing people together, when you have somebody like Netanyahu, whose whole mantra is make it impossible to have a solution, then you're stoking the fires of hatred, the fires of uh, uh, difference uh, in the sense of being different, and also making it impossible for people to know that, you know what, let's let's get this done. And the best way it's done is to compromise. And compromise doesn't mean one party gets everything and the other party gets nothing. It means that both parties get something so that at the end of the day, again, another legal conflict resolution motto I have, which is one of my favorite ones, we don't end up with win-lose, we end up with win-win. And today, in our populist age, whether it's to do with coronavirus, whether it's to do with the conflicts of the world across the globe, not only the MENA region, in this age of populism, we no longer talk of win-win, we talk of win-lose. And for me, the corollary of win-lose is lose lose and that is what makes me sad and that is the end of my sermon james <laughs> well you know you, you talked about being a, a pess optimist which is a nice phrase um yes pessimism but let, let's stick to the optimism of, of your beautiful picture of, of companionship and sharing a meal and hospitality both peoples round a table just being people, as you say. Yeah, it might be a cliche, but people are people. We are all human beings. We do get a bit blinkered and, and you know, when we start to look at whether our rights are being infringed and who, who's doing the poking and the pulling and so forth. But, you know, maybe we won't be dead, Harry. Let's let's look at the um, optimist of the pess optimist and say that we might be alive seeing that. Well, that if you believe in picture the sense of cryogenics, uh, James, yes, maybe, maybe we, we won't be dead. But I'll tell you one thing. If, as I believe personally in my own faith, if my mom is somewhere there watching me now speak with you, she will probably scratch her head and say, poor Harry, he hasn't grown any wiser yet. <laughs> but you know what? She'll love you nonetheless. That's the beauty of it. Of that, I'm sure.
Absolutely. Look, Harry, it's been it's been a long one. Thank you, listeners, for sticking with us. I mean, let's be honest, it's not it's not an easy subject to cover. Um, it's it's lasted decades and, and will probably last an awful lot longer before we see, God willing, a peaceful solution to this. But Harry, thank you ever so much. There is more to talk about. We need to get back to our, our one a month MEA analysis podcasts. And um, obviously, we've got the embargo in the Gulf states. We've got matters in Libya that we want to talk about. So um, I'll be dialing you up again, if that's all right. Dial, dial me up again. It's fun to do that with you anytime, James. And yes, I would very much like, and I'd appreciate to do this with you. I can do it on YouTube on my own, but there is far more fun. And with fun comes benefit uh, for everybody, including myself, uh, to do this with you. So I'd like to touch upon the third anniversary of the embargo against Qatar and also to to talk about Libya at some stage, uh, which is really at a crossroads now between turning into a new Syria and managing to get old parties and knocking their heads together and saying enough is enough, let's stop playing games and let's think about this oil-rich country, how can it move forward? So I'd like uh, to do that. And uh, let me just finish off by saying thank you for not only for uh, putting up with my one-hour monologues at times, but also for the wit with which you receive my answers and for introducing me to this new impersonal way of talking to James from across a screen. Ah, oh, well, you know, Harry, we'll get used to it, won't we? We'll get used to it. Thanks ever so much. Look, we'll, we'll definitely, I think this deserved a single issue Middle East analysis, this particular issue. Um, We will obviously pick up on those very important issues playing out across the Middle East, North Africa at this moment in time. Very soon indeed. Harry, thank you. As always, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well, James, and all the best to you.